How's everyone doing? Good. Well, thanks for having me. Happy to be here with you. Um, and uh, sorry to hear Josiah's sick. He texted me this morning because he was going to be here. I, I was uh, supposed to come and teach today uh, sort of with or without him, hoping he would be here, but fortunately sick. But happy to be with you guys, even though he's not here. It's still all right. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 3. And uh, we're continuing our series, Prophets and Kings, 2 Kings chapter 3. And um, as we sort of get going, kind of want to sort of bring us up to speed. And uh, you guys have been going through this series, Prophets and Kings, through the books of First and Second Samuel and now First and Second Kings. And uh, really looking at the story of Israel and how the story of Israel ultimately leads to our story, sort of how we are involved. Because God's plan from the beginning was to bring a Savior into the world. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? God makes a promise, a messianic promise, even from the beginning, that God is going to send uh, through the seed of a woman a Savior who would redeem all people. And then as you move through Israel's story, that promise just sort of gets uh, uh, more uh, narrow, I guess, or more uh, uh, specific. And so we go from this general promise to then God choosing one family, Abraham. And he says, from your descendants, uh, God will provide a blessing to all nations. And then it gets even sort of more focused as we go from just a family which multiplies in bondage to the people of Egypt. They go from about 300 to a couple million. They go out of the bondage of the Egyptians ultimately to their promised land. And that it's in the promised land that that promise gets even more specific. It goes from a family to a specific line. We're introduced to King David. And King David, we're told, is going to be the first king or second king, but through his lineage will ultimately become the king of kings and the Lord of lords where we'll get Jesus. And so the, the story of Israel is our story in the sense it's through their line and through their history we ultimately get to our Savior, Jesus. And so following their story gives us uh, both how Jesus came into the world, but also gives us a really good picture as to why we needed him. Right? If, you, if you go through the story, we see that in the book of Judges, we, we really ache for God's justice and mercy and God's completeness, that he would restore all of humanity back to himself. And then in, in Samuel and in the Kings, we really see a need for a, a final king, a true king, a just king. Because the, the, the following the Israelites' kings, you see sort of the up and down history of their kings. Where the northern tribe, Israel, uh, they never had a good king. It was always broken, always flawed. And then the southern uh, kingdom of Judah had a couple of good kings. But as you follow the story of the kings, you're just like, we need a good king. We need a king that will, will, will reign with justice and mercy and holiness and truth. And so even as we look at the specific lives and the specific stories, it gives us a cry in our hearts for King Jesus. And so that's kind of what we're moving through in the series. Now, we saw in chapter 2, if you were with us last week, the beginning of Elisha's ministry. Elijah ascends to heaven. He has that sort of chariot ride to heaven and disappears. And then the mantle is passed both physically and spiritually to Elisha. And Elisha, as the predecessor to Elijah, 
prayed for a double portion of God's spirit. And we see that God answers that prayer in his life and ministry. Uh, we're told that Elijah performed about eight unique miracles. And then Elisha performs about 16 unique miracles. So we have this double portion being played out in the ministry of Elisha. And so we see a continuation and expansion of Elijah's ministry through this prophet, Elisha. Last week, we saw a really difficult and strange passage of Scripture. We talked about blessings, bald heads, and bears. Um, and uh, Josiah, if you missed it, go back and listen to it, because it was, uh, Josiah did a masterful job of teaching on the tension between God's mercy and grace and his justice and judgment. That there's this beautiful tension that we ache for, that we cry for, for both God's grace and mercy and for God's judgment and justice. And we see that in this story. And that will give us a really good framework and backdrop as we look at our text this morning. In this section, we're going to see that God's ways are not man's ways. And my message title this morning is that God's ways are often weird. God's ways are often weird. God doesn't necessarily draw with a straight line. His desire for us is not to get us from point A to point B in the fastest way possible. Even when it comes to our spiritual growth and maturity or even our calling, God's ways are not always the fastest or most direct route. We see that in both what God does and in who God uses. God uses a sterile 90-year-old to be the father of a nation. He, he takes the people of Israel 40 years to get to a place that should have taken them 11 days. The greatest king of Israel committed adultery and murder. When boats don't do the job, he causes people to travel by fish. The, the way he destroyed death was through dying. You see, the ways of God are not always the straightest ways. The things of God are not, don't always make natural sense. We prioritize productivity, we prioritize efficiency. We like strong and clear leadership. Uh, that, that's why we like Google Melp, Maps that helps us get from point A to point B, the fastest route. And we want to know how to avoid traffic and tolls, right? We like life coaches that tell us how to get to the, tell us the clearest way to reach our goals. We like the internet because it can tell us, uh, the, uh, tell us the answers to our questions as quickly as possible, right? We like things now, Immediate. We like productivity, efficiency, strong and clear leadership. But God prioritizes patience. He prioritizes endurance. And he prioritizes simple obedience to him. And this story that we're going to look at teaches us how to follow God even when it seems difficult or weird. Now, I know it may be a little off-putting to say that God's ways are weird. Um, it may be smarter or more marketable as a preacher to say that God's ways are not weird, but God's ways are better, which is true. God's ways are better. But I think for us to be able to follow Jesus and to allow him to produce patience and endurance and obedience, we have to expect that things aren't going to go the way that we think or the way that we want them to go. And I think it would be unfair to all of us to just say that God draws with a straight line. Or that God's goal for your life is to get you in the fast track as quickly as possible, more like Christ. 
And the reality is, is God uses difficulty and confusion and opposition and pain and all of these different avenues to produce what he's ultimately producing in us. And so if we can humbly go before God and recognize that his goal for us is, is not to be productive, but to be patient, or, or, or not to, have, uh, uh, to, to work in a fast way, but for us to allow him to produce endurance in us, then we'll be, I think, have a healthy view of what God's doing in our life. All right, 2 Kings uh, chapter 3. One last thing before we jump in. We're going to kind of move through this story. Um, we're going to pull out little uh, uh, sort of application as we move. My goal is really for us to understand kind of what's happening in the story and then see some application as we go. So um, cha- uh, chapter 3, 2 Kings, it says this. Now, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram went out to Samaria, went out of Samaria at the time, and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. Then he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched on that roundabout route seven days. And there was no water for the army, nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. All right, we're going to pause right there. The first thing I want us to see is that man's ways are often wrong. Man's ways are often wrong. The story gives us context into what's going on in Israel during the time of Elisha. And we'll see Elisha in the next verse. But we're introduced to really three kings and one bad idea is basically what's happening. Three kings and one bad idea. It begins with an ungodly ambition. It's where the story begins. Now, we're introduced to Jehoram. Jehoram was the descendant of Ahab and Jezebel, um, and he was now the current king of Israel. And we're told that he is a bad king, right? Most of the stories begin as this was the king. He did evil in the sight of God because he did this, that, and the other. He reigned this many years. He led the people astray. And that's usually how sort of the, the cadence of the king's goes. And this is Jehoram. We're told that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now it gives us a little uh, uh, caveat. He says, but he wasn't as bad as his parents. Like he was bad, uh, but he wasn't Ahab and Jezebel bad. But he was not good, (laughs) right? Like it makes that distinction. Like he was bad. He wasn't that. He wasn't that bad. So we're introduced to Jehoram. We're also introduced to Mesha, king of Moab, and we're told that the king of Moab paid taxes to Israel. But after Ahab had died, he rebelled and stopped paying these taxes. So 
Jehoram decides that he needs to go get his taxes. That's what's happening. So the, the king of Moab gives him sheep and ram's wool, but he stops after Ahab. And when Jehoram realizes that, he, he decides, I need to go get my taxes. And so this action that he takes was motivated by greed and by pride. That's where the story begins. Actions motivated by greed and pride. And pride and greed can often be a motivator behind the decisions that we make, can't, isn't it? Pride and greed. Okay, I need to do this. Why? Well, because I, I, I'm important. I matter. People need to respect me. I need to do this. And so we make decisions based upon our pride. Or we make our decisions, probably not or, both, and we make decisions based upon greed. I need more. More success, more power, more influence, whatever it is. And so the motivation, the story begins with King Jehoram saying, I need to get what's mine. This belongs to me. Or I, or I think it belongs to me, and so my motivation is greed and pride. And so this godly ambition, or ungodly ambition, then leads to an unholy alliance. That's what we see next. Jehoram goes and gets Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, to go and join him. Then they also get the king of Edom to join them. Jehoshaphat was a godly king. We'll see that in a moment. So it's a bit strange of a relationship. Je Jehoram, king of Israel, goes and gets the king of Judah, who is a godly king, and he says, hey, Moab has been evil towards me. They haven't paid their taxes. Will you go with me and fight them? And he's like, all right, let's do this together. Now, I want you to notice, and we'll, we'll talk about it more as we go, but there's no seeking God. There's no prayer. <laughs> there's no uh, asking uh, biblical counsel. There's no seeking the prophet. We'll get to that. But right away in their decisions, both in their relationships and in their ambition, it just purely stems from pride and greed and going to get what they think is owed to them. So they join together and they head towards Moab. Now I want you to see, I think we've got a map on the screen that shows us, uh, do we have that map? Is it up there? I can't see. Okay, cool. So you can see, I just want us to see this is kind of where they're going. We see Israel up in the north, and then Israel goes down to Judah and gets Jehoshaphat. And then they together go down. Do you see Edom at the bottom? They go and get the king of Edom, and then they're going to go up, we're told, the roundabout way up to Moab. You see that sort of roundabout? If you, the direct line would be to go from Samaria in Israel, or uh, in the northern tribe, straight down and over to Moab. You see that? Can I get a head nod because I can't see the map? Okay, um, so straight down and over. They don't. They go down, find the king of Judah. Hey, will you join me? He says, yeah, my horses are your horses. Let's do this thing. Then they go the roundabout way up to Edom. Now, or excuse me, the Moab. Now, this route from this ungodly ambition and this uh, unholy uh, uh, relationship, it, this ultimately causes an unforeseen adversary. This unforeseen adversary is that they ran out of water, right? So here they are. Okay, king of uh, Israel is like, I need to get mine. I need to get my sheep and my ram's wool. Let's go do this thing. So he goes down. He gets Jehoshaphat. Hey, will you go fight with me in Moab? Let's do it. They go and find Edom. Hey, you guys are in too? Yeah, we're in. All right, we're going. Let's go fight. Yeah, pumped up. We're doing it. We're going to get what's ours. Let's go. Now they start journeying together. 
They're seven days into the journey. They've gone the roundabout way, and all of a sudden, they've ran out of water. And they're looking at each other, and they're like, did you bring any water? No, I thought that was, I thought that was, I thought that was Edom's job. I thought that was, right? And they, they ran out of water for themselves. They ran out of water for their, their, their army, and they ran out of water for their livestock. And they're going this roundabout way, and it causes this unforeseen adversary. Now, it's no surprise that their plans end this way. They set out with a goal driven by pride and greed. They allowed bad relationships to set their direction, and they never once considered where God was or what he was doing. We all face opposition in life, don't we? We all experience difficulty in life. We experience temptation, trials, disappointment, doubts, discouragement. And sometimes the opposition we face in life is outside force coming against us. Sometimes the, the, the experiences that you face is, is completely unrelated to you. It's outside experiences or forces or situations that are coming against you. But sometimes the opposition that we face is self-inflicted. Sometimes the persecution or the sufferings that we face is not some outside uncontrollable force that's come against us, that's stopping us. The reality is it's a byproduct of our own decisions that has led us to this opposition. Here we have these kings that are set out in pride and greed in relationships that aren't centered around God with a plan that's clearly not really thought out because you would think on the top of the list would be water for the journey. You have all of these things and now they're facing this opposition. Why? Well, it's not some outside force coming against them. It's not some thing that's, oh, this is beyond our control. Why is this happening to me? God, why is this going on? No, this is a byproduct of foolish decisions. Are you with me? Sometimes, and if I could preach for a moment, sometimes the frustrations or the pain or the difficulty that we're facing is not some outside force trying to stop you or trying to get you. What it is, is it's your own foolish decision that has led you to this situation. Sometimes we, we're quick to go like, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And God's like, well, if you go to this chapter and verse in the Bible, or if you go to this church service, or if you go to this experience, when I spoke to you and said, maybe you shouldn't do that, and maybe you shouldn't behave that way, or maybe you shouldn't think like that, then you wouldn't have found yourself in this situation to begin with. Can I get an Amen. But some, so sometimes we have to realize that the, the, the opposition that we face is a byproduct of our own decision. And I wonder how often we experience opposition in life as a result of selfish goals or bad relationships or bad planning. Now, this difficulty that they faced causes two reactions. The first reaction as a result of their opposition is that they blame God. First, so opposition as a result of their own decision-making, but their response is they blame God. Let's look again at verse 10. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Now follow the progression. You have a completely selfish plan. Never once do they pause to pray. And here when things don't go the way they wanted, they blame God. It's interesting how often people who ignore God and do their own thing are quick to blame God when things don't go their way. 
Right? It's, it, God is not anywhere in this story so far. This is the first time God's mentioned. And how is he mentioned? God, why did you let this happen to us? We're your chosen people. We're Israel. We're supposed to go defeat Moab. We're going to die on our way to Moab. God, why are you letting this happen to us? And we're told that, that Jehoram was not a, a God worshiper at all. In fact, it says that he was a lot like his parents, although he didn't do it exactly the same way. He still worshipped false gods. So here we have this idol worshiper, and his first mention of Yahweh is to blame him for allowing this difficulty to happen in his life. Yet he expected that God was in some way going to bless his ambition. And one of the dangers we must all be aware of is making our decisions, setting our own goals, and then simply asking God to bless our plans rather than seeking his plans. When we do it the other way, it's easy for us to get tripped up or blame God when it doesn't work out because we have this false assurance that we're seeking the Lord. Right? So often, and I do the same thing, I'm not just saying it's you, it's me too, but I'll be like, all right, here's the plan. This is what we're doing. This is how long we're going to be there. This is what's going to happen. This is who's coming with me. All right, God, be there. All right, let's do it. Right? It's, it's here's my plan. Here's my route. Here's who's going to be involved. And God, I just want you to sprinkle a little blessing on it so it all works out. And then, well, everything's good. I get my way. God, you were involved. Everybody's happy. And then when it doesn't work out, we're like, wait a second. God, you were supposed to bless this. God, you were supposed to be, you were supposed to make it happen. And we get frustrated. And there's a huge difference between having our own plans and asking God to bless them and seeking God's plans in his ways. But when, the, when it doesn't work out, the first response we see is they blame God. Now, the second thing that this opposition causes is one blames God, but secondly, we see that they seek God. This is where the story turns. Let's continue in verse 11. So let me just recap, just so we're all on the same page. I know you guys are like, I get it, but just for my own sake. Israel gets paid taxes from Moab. They stop paying the taxes. He goes down, gets Judah. Judah gets Edom. They're on their way up. They run out of water. They're like, we're going to die. We're not even going to fight. What's going on? God, why are you letting this happen? They blame God. And now the story continues, verse 11. But Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? Okay, first time God's mentioned in the story in a positive way. Oh, wait a second. There's got to be a prophet somewhere. We should ask him, what does God think about our plans? What is God doing right now? Maybe we should inquire of him and see what's going on. So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured, wa who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, that's Jehoram, he says, what do I have to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. So, so he, he's recognizing again that Jehoram is an idol worshiper, right? He's, he doesn't follow Yahweh. 
he, he, he worships the idols. And so he says, I love that. Elisha, straight to him, the leader. What do I have to do with you? Go ask one of your prophets. Go ask one of your idols what you should do. And then it says this. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or see you. I love that. Just the presence of Jehoshaphat, a follower of God. Now, it seems like from the outset he's making a compromising uh, decision by connecting with Jehoram to begin with. But whatever the case, there's a level of blessing and favor on his life that is then being transferred onto the people's lives around him. And I think that, that, let me just pause, it's not in the notes, not in the message, but to encourage you, that there is something, when, when God has a blessing on your life, or God has called you, or, or let me put it more specifically, when you're in relationship with Jesus, and you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, there is blessing that then is transferred from you onto others because of your life. That God wants to use your life to be a blessing to the people around you. And so Elisha, he says, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even be taking the time of day to talk to you, Jehoram. But because of this guy, we're going to have this conversation. And then he says, uh, verse 15, but, I love this, now bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For, thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hands. Also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good place of land with stones. Now it happened in the morning, when the grain offering was offered, that suddenly water came by way of Edom, and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered, and they stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, a Moab to the spoil. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites. So they fled before them and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. So Jehoshaphat, we see, decides that instead of blaming God, even though God hadn't been involved thus far, he's going to seek God. Facing difficulty, even if it's self-inflicted, should drive us to seeking God's heart. We even see some practical ways to seek God in this passage. First, they go to a godly person. You want to seek God? Okay, what is God doing? Where's God's heart? What does God want to do with my life? I think a great place to start, if you don't know where to start, is to seek a godly person. They're like, ah, Elisha's around. Let's go talk to him. Let's go see what his uh, thought is. This whole excursion began because of an ungodly ambition, unholy alliances. And so how do we combat that? Well, we seek the heart of God by going to godly counsel. 
And then notice also what Elisha does to seek God. Verse 15, he says, Now bring me a musician. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. So they sought godly person, but then even specifically, we're told that he set an environment that allowed for him to hear the voice of God. All right, give me a musician. In other words, like, let, let's set our intention. Let, let's, let's set an environment that would allow for us to hear from God. Let's eliminate distractions. Let's remove the chaos and the noise and the confusion in life. And let's sit in the presence of God and let's hear him speak doesn't mean you need a musician, although in times of worship and praise, we definitely become more sensitive to God's presence and voice. It's one of the beautiful things about worship as we sing together. God also speaks to us specifically. He ministers to our heart. And part of it is it's just because we're, we're engaging our mind and our bodies, focusing on God. That's why we close our eyes or lift our hands and we sing together. It's to really set all of our faculties towards God, right? It's, it's a, our whole body, mind, all of it is say, okay, I am focusing on God. So he's bring me a musician. Let's, let's set our intention upon God. And the real point here is to put yourself in an environment conducive to hear God. As we go through the busyness of life and the distractions of our phones, the closeness of our families and the demands of our job, it's increasingly difficult to hear from God. And sometimes we wonder, why do I never hear from God? And it's like, man, why do I never hear from God? What were you saying? Oh, right, yeah. Right, it's like so much in life we're distracted, we're busy, we're preoccupied, and then we wonder why we don't hear God. And so here they go. Okay, we're seeking God. How? Well, we're just setting aside distractions. We're putting ourselves in an environment, and we're, allowed, we're listening to the voice of God. And when we set aside times, get alone, eliminate distractions, his voice becomes increasingly louder. Now, man's ways are often wrong. It can lead to opposition and difficulty, but then opposition can lead you to seek God. And can I encourage you, if you're feeling that opposition, whether it's self-inflicted or not, whether it's a result of bad decisions or it is outside force coming against you, can I encourage you to allow that to lead you to the presence of God? Let that lead you to more of an awareness of who he is, more of an awareness of what he's doing in your life, and be intentional with setting environments that will allow for you to hear from God. Now, the second part of this message is, is that we see that God's ways are often weird. Let's talk about that for a moment, because the, this part of the story is where we see this. Okay, they seek the godly counsel. The godly counsel seeks God's voice, and they get an answer. And it's kind of weird. He says, all right, here's what God says. You're thirsty, right? You've been traveling without water for seven days. What's the solution? I want you to go to the valley, and I want you to dig as many ditches as you possibly can. Oh, no, 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 no. You misunderstood. We're dehydrated. We're thirsty. Like, is there a creek nearby that we could just go drink out of? No, no, no. See the desert? See this, see this valley? I want you to go there. Use all of your capacity, all of your army, all of your people, and just start digging ditches. Okay. <laughs> right? It's like, no, no, no. You don't understand that. If you're, if you're thirsty, 
you probably don't want to exert a bunch of energy and sweat. If, you, if you're dehydrated, probably the best solution for you is not to go out in the blazing sun and, figure, and dig holes. It makes no sense whatsoever. The amazing thing about this is that they obey, right? It, it, it kind of even brushes over in the passage the fact that they did it. They just woke up the next morning and there was holes. They just did it. <laughs> when we seek God and set an environment to hear from God, when he speaks, it's then our job to simply obey. So it, it's, that's it. It's simply obey. Again, God prioritizes patience, endurance, and simple obedience to him. And we practice simple obedience when we obey even when things don't make sense to us. This seems to be increasingly relevant in our world today. The ways of God, the word of God, and even the timing of God seem strange to the world around us. Why does God care so much about our attitude at work or our sexual ethic or our pace of life? So much of the things of God or the ways of God seem, seem bizarre and, and unfamiliar or, or, or disconnected or, or just outdated to our world behind, the world around us. And the call of the Christian is always to simple obedience. It's childlike faith. It's a humble submission to God. And I think for us, the way that we find clarity in life the way that we find a, a, a conviction for our calling is when we simply obey what God's speaking to us. And when you don't know what he's speaking to you, when you're like, I, I don't have clarity or I don't know what's next for me, well, open up God's word and be obedient to what he's speaking. The ways of God can seem weird, but God's ways always produce the best outcomes. That's what we see in the story. They dig holes. God's promises that he's going to provide water, and he does exactly that. God's word, coupled with their obedience, produces a solution for both their immediate threat and their impending threat. The ditches were filled with water for them to drink. Right? So immediately, he says, you're not going to hear it. You're not going to know where it came from. None of that. You dig the ditches, God will fill it with water. The simple call to obedience, they do it, and out of nowhere, in the night, somehow, there, there's no solution, the ditches are filled with water, and their immediate threat was absolved. It was, it, there was a solution, right? They woke up, we're thirsty, yes, there's water we can drink. But also their impending threat. We're, we're told that the ditches filled with water tricked the enemy, which gave them victory. I want to close with a simple thought and... Um, Worship team, you can make your way up here. The simple thought is this. They were saved by the blood. <laughs> they were saved by the blood. Right here, the story again. Okay, we're lost. We're confused. There's opposition. Part of it is self-inflicted. Part of it is bad relationships. Part, all of this. We're in this situation. Okay, God, what do we do? What's our next step? Dig holes. As many holes as you can. All right, we're doing it. And you're not going to hear it. You're not going to see it. You're not going to know how, but they're going to be filled with water for you and your armies and your livestock to drink. They wake up the next morning, praise God. Wow, the waters, they're here. And then what happens? The Moabites hear about it. And they're like, all right, it's our time to go attack the Israelites. It's our turn. 
Let's go, let's go take advantage of them. Let's go destroy them. And then they get there, and the way that the sun was coming up, the red sun early in the morning, reflecting off the pools of water, because they're not thinking that they're literally pools of water. They don't know that they just spent all day digging holes. They look out, and the, the red sun reflecting off the water looks like blood. And they go, oh, they, they destroyed each other. The three kings, it didn't work out. King of, king of Judah must have betrayed Edom or Israel, and they killed each other, and now they're all dead. And let's, I love that, to Moab go the spoils, like this chant, and they run out there. They run out, and then Israel's like, oh, our turn, right? And immediately we're told that they destroy the people. The blood was their salvation. And I want to make that simple point for us. We're saved by the blood. Though our sins are like scarlet, they can be washed white as snow because of the blood of Christ. A simple declaration over our life. We are saved by the blood. And the same blood that spilled from Calvary 2,000 years ago is our salvation today. Whatever situation, difficulty, opposition, or confusing you're facing today, there is salvation by the blood of Jesus. It's not a new message. It's not something that's going to, I'm not giving you, okay, here's three ways to radically transform your life. I'm just calling us simply back to the cross to say that there's salvation in the blood. That we have life because of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Though our sins like scarlet, though, though we feel guilt and shame as a result of our sin or our choices or our environment, we can be washed, we can be forgiven, we can be made new, we can be made whole because of the blood of Christ. Can I just encourage us as a church this morning to allow the forgiveness that flows so freely from the cross to wash over us afresh this morning, to allow the blood of Christ, the same blood that saves 2,000 years ago is the same blood that saves today, that we can place faith in Jesus and we can have our sins forgiven. And then also we can allow him to, to just wash us fresh and, and, and clean each day. I think of the story of, uh, of Jesus when he was the, the, uh, talking with the, the disciples and he tells them that he has to, he wants to wash their feet, right? And Peter is offended. He's like, you can't wash my feet. No, that, that's, he's basically saying, I should be washing your feet. That's the job of a servant. You can't do that to me. And then Jesus responds and he says, he says, unless I wash your feet, you can have no part in me. And then Peter like starts taking off his robe and he's like, okay, then wash all of me. And he's like, slow down. That's not the point. He says, you're already cleansed by the word I've spoken over you. But, he says, to truly be my disciple or experience this, I need to wash your feet. And I think there's a point in that for followers of Jesus. That the blood of Jesus, through faith in Jesus, we're cleansed, we're forgiven, we're made right. We, we, we experience the righteousness of God. But there's a byproduct of us living in a fallen, broken, and dirty world that our feet get dirty. We experience guilt and compromise and, and partly because of our own decision, partly because of the environment in that we live. And yet Christ can wash our feet, make us clean again. I, I was thinking when, uh, when you guys were 
talking about Guatemala, we had done some mission trips with some of our students to Guatemala a number of years ago. And uh, we would go out and do um, mission work and you know, I remember some of the some of the things when you bring high school kids to do mission work, the groups are just like, okay, we got to occupy their time. So it's like, um, just one of the days it was like, okay, just move these rocks from here to there. And the students literally all day, all right, we're here. <laughs> move the rocks from there. I, I'm convinced that the next group that showed up just moved them back over to there. Just like, are we, I'm just kidding. But so we'd go out, we'd work all day. We'd, we'd do random things. We'd come back filthy, disgusting, sweaty, you know, so there, there'd be showers. Everyone would take their shower, but then we would walk from the showers because it was like an outdoor sort of hostile situation. And so we'd walk from the shower where we'd get clean back to our room. And it's kind of like a dirt path that we would walk. And most kids weren't thinking I, I said kids, I wasn't thinking either. And we'd go take our shower and then you forget shoes when you're walking back. So we'd be clean and we'd have to walk through the dirt back through our room. And so we would, we would leave a little water bottle by our room that we could just wash our feet off. So that way we weren't dragging dirt and sand into our bed. And I just think that, that there's a simple like encouragement for us an application from that is we're washed, we're cleansed, we're forgiven by the blood of Christ. And yet, there's a byproduct of living in a fallen, broken world that there's, there's things and, and we stumble into things. We get messy and we get dirty and Jesus just wants to wash us clean again. Just that just simple foot washing of, of, of no, you're cleansed, God, still washed by the blood. There's salvation in the blood of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your great love for us. And Lord, even in bizarre stories in the Bible, we see your goodness and your grace and your love for us. And Lord, we thank you that you, you don't, like we began, we, you don't draw often with a straight line, but you're producing something in us. You're doing a work in us. And Lord, you're faithful to complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we want to lean in, God, to your process and your timing and what you're doing in us. Lord, would you produce patience in us and endurance and obedience to your word? And Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for the salvation that's in his name. And Lord, we call upon you together this morning. Jesus, would you wash us clean? Would you, would you do a new work in us? We thank you, Lord, for your great love. And if you are here today and you've never placed faith in Jesus, I, I just want to encourage you right now in your heart to say, Lord, would you cleanse me? I believe in you. I want to walk. I want to follow after you. That's all of us, Lord. We, we want more of you in our life. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand together. And uh, the worship team is going to close us in a final song.